When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. Sari, tell us a little bit about Paolo Ramos. So Paula is currently a host and correspondent for Vice on Showtime, where she mostly covers migration and the border crisis. Um, She was born in Miami and grew up in Spain. Her mom was born in Cuba and her dad is Mexican-American and a longtime, very well-known anchor on Univision, Jorge Ramos. So journalism seems to be in her blood. Yeah, you know, I'm not convinced that it's journalism as much as it is using stories to create awareness and change. I knew her before she started reporting for Vice because she uh, served in the Obama White House and she then was the deputy director of Hispanic media for the 2016 Clinton campaign, which we will definitely rehash because I just don't think that title ages well. Yes. (laughs) Like, you know, given what we know now, the disparate Latinx communities in the U.S. And even in those positions, she was really set on understanding and making others um, understand what Finds and drives the Latino community. Yeah, and I think that's such an interesting point and something that Paula seems to have struggled with. She said that after losing the 2016 campaign, she started to think about what they were missing and trying to reach the 60 million Latinos in the U.S. Less than half of Latinos actually cast a ballot in the 2016 election, even in such a heated race. So she said she started thinking about how Latinos are also different and maybe don't even identify with the word Hispanic or the word Latino and how they've just evolved over the years. So then she went on this journey throughout the United States to speak with some of these communities, conservative, liberal, indigenous, undocumented, Spanish speaking and not. And she wrote the book. It's called Finding Latinx in Search of the Voices Redefining Latino Identity. It was part reporting on others' experiences, but also searching for her own identity, I think. It's a really good book. And it just shows the sort of disparate voices that make up the Latinx community. For example, the chairman of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, is Latinx. And she interviews him. There's a chapter about him um, in the book as well. It's really fascinating. But I really wanted to bring her on the show now because I've been doing a lot of work and thinking about what's currently happening at the border, migration of children that are coming to the U.S. border seeking asylum. And Pow, in her work for Vice, has done some really compelling reporting about this from the countries themselves well south of the border. Mm-hmm. Then also her own book shows how disparate uh, this community is. And I'm really interested to know 
well, what binds them then, right? Mm -hmm. Is there an experience that binds them together? Is there some sort of quality that she thinks of when she thinks of Latinx? So let's get to it. Paolo Ramos, welcome to Just Something About Her. Hello, thank you for having me. So I want to start with your work on the Showtime show Vice. I just watched your latest episode where you reported from El Darian. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. So this is a very dangerous jungle region between Colombia and Panama, which you said is essentially the only path for migrants at this point headed to the United States without a visa. We're going to play a few clips from your reporting there, but here's a little scene setter you gave from that episode. I'd say that there's at least 100 people here. There are children from the ages of five to literally three months old. And you can sense a true anxiety, particularly among the women that are trying to ensure that their children are safe. You were in Panama. I couldn't believe how far away. I mean, how much treachery (laughs) and danger is encountered every hour of this journey that they take and how long the journey is. And it's harrowing at every moment, it seems. Exactly. And you said it perfectly. I think when we think about immigration, we think about the U.S.-Mexico border. Right. But I think the the, That's where I thought you were when I saw you tweet about it. I assumed you were on the U.S.-Mexico border. Right. But that's where your mind goes automatically. But part of this story, and I think part of what what a lot of people are trying to do is, is force people to understand that First of all, migration is a global problem. And second of all, it starts miles and miles and miles and miles before the border. No? And so what's happening is that there's many migrants, particularly coming from Cuba and from Haiti, but really from all over the world, that because the immigration laws are more you know, relaxed in places like Ecuador or Chile, they're getting planes to those countries through Latin America. And then starting through South America, they start their journey striking north because it's a lot easier than going to Mexico because it's a lot easier than going Mm -hmm. to Central America. And so thousands of migrants are doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, Cubans have typically migrated, for example, like my own family. You know, they they took a boat from Cuba to Florida. That's no longer the case. Many Cubans and people don't know this since 2015 have now opted to go, you know, by terrain through South America towards the border, which it's not a new route. Is this because of what they refer to as wet foot, dry foot policy? Exactly. It coincided with wet foot, dry foot policy. And, and also just like the monitoring of, of that ocean has just increased. And so people, when they make the option, mm-hmm. they started to assess that it was easier to go easier. No? And I'm putting quotes um, to go by foot. But the story is that in order for a lot of these migrants to obviously make the trek from South America to the U.S.-Mexico border, they have to pass through El Darien. There's no way around it. No, you can't take a plane over it because it's illegal. You have to go through this jungle. So people know this jungle is essentially 66 miles of, you know, dense jungle that is governed by no one. There is no, you know, government officials that are inside this jungle. It is completely unpaved. There are no roads. And as I said, there is no way around it. Now, the Colombian side of the, of the jungle is controlled. No, that is a territory that is controlled by El Clan del Golfo, which is Colombia's you know, most powerful cartel. The Panamanian side of that jungle is controlled by different gangs. And so you're not only up against insane wildlife, like there are scorpions in there, there are like wild monkeys, there's all sorts of snakes. 
everything you can possibly imagine in a jungle you're you're up against that but also the threat of gangs cartels and that's real in fact Many say that it's the world's most dangerous jungle. They've also called it a graveyard of immigrants, a, you know, a, a dark hole. No? So, so it is, it's, it's extremely dangerous. And so you know, part of what we tried to show in that piece is that immigrants are so desperate to come to the United States that they are willing, no? that they are willing to literally cross this jungle with their babies to come to America because they are so driven by this idea of the American dream that they will risk anything, including their lives, knowingly to do that. And that's exactly what we saw in that story. We saw literally hundreds of migrants coming out of like boats. And I won't even go into the journey to get to that jungle. One of the women that I met, Yasenia. Mm -hmm. So Yasenia is a 33-year-old, you know, very young Cuban woman. She left Cuba immediately, you know, went to South America and then started her trek through Uruguay and like three different countries before she got to Colombia. When you get to Colombia, you arrive to this coastal town that it's called Necogli. So this town is right in front of El Arien, but the only way to get from this little town to the jungle is you have to cross the Gulf of Urabá, which is part of the Caribbean Sea. And so, you know, she had been on the road for a couple of weeks, like two weeks. Then when she got to this coastal town, she was stranded like many migrants are because unlike tourists, you know, unlike you and I, we go to that town, we can pay money to take a ferry to take us through the Gulf and then to take us to the other town. Migrants haven't been able to do that for months, right? The Colombian government says that it's because of the COVID restrictions. But again, when you're seeing people like us crossing and they're stranded, it looks one way. You know, it's, it, there's a lot of xenophobia in there. And so many migrants like Yasenia have to pay coyotes, you know, have to pay these like illegal human traffickers. Mm -hmm to take them to the other side of the Gulf. And as I said before, this is all a territory that is completely controlled by the cartels. Now, the main cocaine route that you know, most people know of originates from this very Gulf that migrants are crossing. And so someone like her spent, as I said, a couple of weeks to get to that point, then was stranded there for like a little bit over a month until she made the choice that she was going to pay money to a coyote to cross. All of this while she was a couple of weeks pregnant. Okay. And then there's a moment where I ask her, I'm like, you know, why this? Why are you doing this? And most women that I, that I ask that question always say the same thing. It goes back to the kids. No? It's because I know they deserve better. That's just a, a through line amongst every, every woman, every mom, every new mom, every, every woman, because I know that my kids deserve better. And that's why they do it. And that's, that is not even the beginning of the journey. That's midway of the journey. And yes, and crossed the Gulf and then most people, when you cross El Arien, it takes you anywhere between seven to 10 days to cross that jungle. 10 days. Can you imagine that? No, I can't imagine. But you really do such a good job of taking us on the journey with you on the show. I want to play a little more from that episode. So it's 3.30 a.m. right now. And this is the first stop we've made since the boats arrived. Migrants are taking this as an opportunity to rest. There's moms that are breastfeeding, families are sticking together. We've seen couples that are sleeping. And right behind me, the coyotes are starting to collect the money that the migrants owe them. How long were you part of this journey? So we were only able to cross with them for seven hours because we were only able to go until the actual Panamanian border because it is so dangerous. The Panamanian side of the jungle is so dangerous. That's where people get attacked. That's where all the stories that we've heard of migrants seeing dead bodies, it happens on the Panamanian side. 
There's different gangs there. A lot of the sexual assaults, you know, abuse, rapes happen on that side. And so we were pretty much told that were we to go, we were on our own. And the likelihood of us, you know, emerging on the other side with our equipment and even alive was not likely. And so we had to turn back. Everyone is attacked that goes through there, right? Every single person that I talked to that had gone through that side, every single one of them had been attacked. I didn't speak to a single migrant that said that they were not attacked on the Panamanian side. And it's not something they were surprised by. They understood that's what would happen going through. They understood. Exactly. And it's part of your calculation, right? That is how strong human nature is, no? that you are willing to see your own death in order to give yourself approval to live. That is how strong that emotion is, that they are willing to risk it and come as close as they can to death because they believe that they deserve something better. I prepared a lot for this trip. I did my research. I read everything that I could and I was frozen. And I can't tell you that it's ever happened to me where I've been in a situation and I don't know what to do or what to say. I found myself at least for a good three minutes when I first saw the image of of the migrants arriving and taking that first step into the jungle. I remember not myself and like our crew, you don't know what to do, no? Because as a journalist, you're there to ask questions. As a human, you want to help. As a person, you feel panic, but there's babies crying around you. There's moms that are asking for help. Everyone's cold. They're about to start this trek and you don't, you don't know, you don't know what to do. Yeah. There's a moment in the trek where you talk about these two women that kind of went missing during the journey. So far, the two women that were in front of me at the beginning had been left behind. They started with shoes and I saw them completely barefoot by the time I left them. At this point, I don't really know where they are. Ahead of me, it's pretty silent, it's pitch black. The one thing you can hear, though, the murmuring of children. That's the one thing that you can hear. I mean, I can see that in your face. As much as you were prepared for what you intellectually you knew was going to happen, to see it all transpire and to be, you know, yeah, that proximate to it that you feel some kind of responsibility. Exactly. And we we talked about that as a crew. You know, Uh what is your responsibility in those moments? Are you there to help if someone asks for help? Are you there to simply shoot and tell the story? Are you there to ask questions or to listen? And it all becomes very blurry. You know, what are the ethics around being a journalist in those moments? And I think it is a very personal choice. I think for us, for people like us that have been bouncing between industries, like it's a hard question to understand where you land. But I think when you're in front of a person that needs help, Like, I remember very vividly, the first image we saw was a mom who crossed through that gulf and her baby wasn't breathing in front of us. For a couple of minutes, the baby was blue, completely blue. Maybe the baby was three months old and we were all like just helping, of course, but I don't know. Did you come out of it with any clarity? Yeah. You know, it made me think that for anyone that is covering the border and for anyone that is covering migration... And for every member of Congress that is too scared to cross that border, you really need to see what it looks like. Like you have to be there in order to form an opinion, no, in order to write a story about it. That was my conclusion at the end of it. You can't talk about this. You can't write about this if you don't understand why people are doing it. No, it's so easy to form opinions. It's so easy to write that story. It's so easy to take that picture at the border. It's so easy for someone like Senator Ted Cruz to talk about this. But unless you are there and you understand the panic and utter desperation, 
I think we do run injustice to the whole story because it's inherently biased. What strikes me is that there's a very American way that we look at this issue, which is we look at it as in terms of immigration as opposed to migration. That's right. And immigration for the last 30 years in America, since kind of like the end of the Reagan years, was portrayed as a negative thing. It's illegal immigration. It's people coming from Mexico illegally because they want to do better economically. But it seems to me what's hitting the U.S. now is not an immigration crisis, but mm-hmm. we, along with the rest of the world that has a migration crisis, whether people are migrating because of climate migrants, right, or Syrian refugees, these are problems that other parts of the world exactly. have dealt with mm-hmm. in a different way than we are. Like, that's what is coming across to me. Is that seem right? Completely. And it is. And it's just our homework to understand what forces someone to leave their home and to connect it to the theme of this podcast. A lot of the women are fleeing because of the men and because of machismo. And I can't tell you the amount of conversations I've had with like, you know, single moms that are are leaving because they're being persecuted by their partners. Mm -hmm. And at least 14 out of the 25 most deadliest country for women in the world, are throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. And then I think about all the trans women that I've interviewed, now all the trans migrants. Brazil is the first deadliest country for trans women, followed by Mexico. And then imagine, then you get to the border, and under our U.S. asylum laws, there's no gender-based persecution. Like, that doesn't exist in our writing, right? So gender is completely taken out of the equation. So that means that you don't understand. If you don't understand the root of the problem, how are you supposed to understand why people are driven to do this? And that's something that I saw also very clearly in Eladian. Many are fleeing, you know, this like misogyny and machismo, but then they're being exposed and attacked violently throughout the whole journey. And there is no protection anywhere. How informed are the migrants on U.S. policy? Like, is it true that they're focused on Biden being president and that their journey may be made easier because Biden's there there's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of confusion a lot right with president biden they believe and they know that something positive is coming out of that but they don't know exactly what it means for their future right because then the reality is very different from what they may feel right the reality is that as of today still to this day if you are a migrant and you approach the u.s mexico border under title 42 policy that was enacted by the Trump administration, which essentially allows the U.S. government to expel you under the premise of public health laws, of public health safety. In this case, COVID. Exactly, under COVID. So as of today, right now, the majority of migrants cannot seek asylum and claim asylum inside of the United States, with the exception of unaccompanied minors, right? And so that is still the debate to this day. And so I would say that overall, there is a lot of confusion. Overall, President Biden is seen as something positive, but they're so worried on just getting there and getting there and getting there. There was never a coherent plan as to like what it truly meant for them other than we have to get to the border. And I will say one of the characters that we interviewed, Yasenia, the the 33-year-old Cuban woman, she just crossed the border last week and she turned herself into Border Patrol. She was detained for a couple hours. And in her case, she was released, which is not the case, right? Which I think is part of the confusion. Right. Some migrants see someone like Yasenia, who now is on parole in the United States. But the majority, again, and I think that's a really important thing to stress, the majority of asylum seekers have not been allowed and are are not being allowed inside the United States. And the other thing that I think people don't understand is that you said that she met up with the Border Patrol. Is that my understanding is 
the migrants go seek out the border patrol. Yes. Many of them are turning themselves in, right? So many of them, in, in Yasenia's case, she crossed in like the western part of, of Texas in this place called Agunia. And many people like her and in her group, she told me, they seek out border patrol so they can be processed and then start their process of their claim for asylum. But that's not the case in, in other parts of, you know, I've been in, I was just in Matamoros on the eastern part of, of Texas, um, and I witnessed many illegal crossings where migrants are still paying coyotes, you know, 500 bucks to cross the Rio Grande and try and, you know, make it out another way. And I think, A, there's confusion, but then B, I think the most important point is that, you know, unfortunately, when you have like Secretary Mayorkas or the Biden administration telling these migrants don't come right now, that's something they can't abide by. You can't tell someone to not come when they feel that level of desperation because they will come no matter what words are out there, right? All right, it's time to take a break to play some ads. After that, we'll be back with Paolo Ramos to discuss a different journey, her personal quest to discover her own identity and the identity of Latinx people across the U.S. That's next on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. We're here with Paolo Ramos, who is a host and correspondent for Vice, my former colleague on the Clinton campaign, and the author of Finding Latin X in Search of the Voices Redefining Latino Identity. Paolo, you're also such a trooper because I understand that you drove all night last night. Yes, 11 hours from New York City to Atlanta. I did listen to your podcast. Oh, that's good. The last one we heard was Secretary Clinton's podcast, so that was worth it. That was worth the 11-hour drive. It was so good. And Diara, my partner, who, for those that don't know, she worked for Secretary Clinton. She was crying. So that's that's all you need to know oh. at the end. Yeah. Well, let's start with Clinton campaign then. <laughs> Since yeah. somebody who serves, I don't remember somebody said to me, like, when is everybody going to go for 2016? I was like, apparently never. It cracks me up to know that you were the deputy director of Hispanic media, which I actually had to go back Why and look. Why was that look. funny? It's funny because I think it's such a dumb job for me to give you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, wait, did we really have Hispanic media as if that's something that you can contain as if it's a monolith, right? And it just seems like a very dated job to have had in 2016. But we didn't know that, but right? We didn't know that. And that's so exactly. So what happened? So tell us about your, because I feel like so many of us had epiphanies after, whether you're on the Clinton campaign or not, but particularly for this on the Clinton campaign of, oh my God, we were doing it wrong, and now. And so what was that journey like for you in writing Latinx? Well, I don't know if it was that we suddenly realized we were doing it wrong. It's that, yeah, we had no idea, right? And so you're describing this job title that I had, Deputy Director of Hispanic Press. I think it took me losing the election to sort of realizing how little I knew, A, about myself as a Latina, what it meant to be me, and then how little I knew about what it meant to be a young Latino in this country, right? And I think it took, you know, waking up the morning after the election and realizing that after all of the messaging, after everything that we had put out there, regardless of the politics, that in the face of someone like Trump, less than 50% of eligible Latino voters showed up, right? And so that number to me, like, it woke me up, right? It woke me up to understand, like, what I was doing wrong myself and then just why this whole community had shifted in a way that was was happening in front of our eyes for those two years. And we just didn't catch it, I think. Yeah. And what do you mean about what you were doing wrong with yourself? Growing up in in a household where, you know, my, my dad was 
the news is the news anchor of Univision, the empire of Spanish language media. I right. think for many years, I grew up thinking of a certain stereotype of a Latina that was out there, right? The one that I saw on TV screens was the telenovela Latina, was the news anchors that were next to my dad, which were, you know, dressed in a certain way, loved in a certain way, held themselves in a certain way, spoke mm -hmm. in a certain way. And I never fit that image. I feel then, years in politics, I remember being in D.C. and I remember, you know, I didn't feel comfortable enough perhaps to say that I was queer in one room, right? Then I remember going to Mexico to see my family and then I wasn't comfortable enough to say that I was queer there, but yes, in the United States. And so I feel like so much of the beginning of my 20s and the beginning of, of my career was choosing a hat, no? Was mm -hmm. saying I was Latino here and queer there and, and, and I didn't realize I could be everything at once. And I think... Part of Latinx, you know, part of, I think, understanding this new generation of Latinos is telling us, including telling myself, that you can be everything at once, right? That there is not one image of what it means to be an immigrant, a Latina or Latina. And I think that's sort of the shift that I think is something that we didn't really see during the campaign and during the election, right? All these nuances that were existing in front of us. And even if you looked at, at our own campaign, that was happening internally, but we couldn't name it. So I think of my own girlfriend, Diara. Diara worked in the campaign. Diara is a black Mexican, but for two years, I only saw her as a black woman, right? And I think so much of her internal fight with me at the beginning, and I think just internally with the like established Latina group was her trying to tell us, like Latinos also look like me. We too care about criminal justice. I too am just as Latino as you are. And I myself couldn't break that own stereotype, right? And so that sort of, reality was playing out in different corners of the country. And again, I look internally, I look at, at our own staffers, I look at my own relationship. And, and that, I think, was an example of the blind side that we just missed. So describe for us how you would define Latinx. The way that I define it right now is that that X that seems to scare off a lot of people is nothing but an invitation to any Latino that has ever felt left out of the 60 million of us that there's out there. There is something about that X that causes a lot of rejection, fear, like they keep politicizing that X. But it is, I believe in this moment, it is the only word in the vocabulary that at least attempts to create an accurate reflection of what it means to live in this country as a Latino. And there goes the dog. That is typically the reaction that people have when they, when they hear that word. I'm not kidding. It's true. Rosebud objected to the X. She doesn't know. She's just a little scared by it because... X seems to mean like the X factor. It's like it's undefined. That's exactly right. And that's that's sort of the beauty and, and the curse of that word. It is so undefined that people have taken it in so many directions and has been so overtly politicized that we're now having a fight against a word whose only purpose is just to be more inclusive. The biggest pushback I receive from the word is typically from white Latino men. And those are the ones that are typically writing op-eds about it like they take their time to write a whole op-ed about why this term is wrong that's the fascinating part to me is understanding like where this vivid rejection comes from because i think there is something that really really pisses people off when they suddenly see themselves in the same picture as someone that is black someone that is trans someone that's indigenous someone that's gay I think that image is one that Latinos have never seen, right? Being in the same light under people that look very different from you. And there's something about that 
that really, really, really pisses people off. And I think that's sort of part of this whole conversation that we're trying to have as a community is what are these internal biases that we've grown up with our whole lives that are now suddenly coming to light? And why are people so irritated by that image? I mean, I'm, I'm happy that at least we get to have this discussion. It's one I wish I would have had, you know, 10 years mm-hmm. ago, even five years ago in my life. But I think to me, that's where the rejection comes from. It is these like biases we grew up with, this racism and sexism we grew up with. And some people don't like that image. And Latinx forces you to see an image that you didn't have to see for years. You know, the words just something about came out of your mouth. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the same dynamic that we I find happens with gender, which is like, you can't quite name it. It's just something about her exactly. that you don't like, makes you uncomfortable. And because you're not specific about it, it gives you permission to That's exactly right. be that way. That's exactly right. There is something about that word. Typically, it's because people don't like how it's pronounced, but that's not good enough. No, typically because they think you're butchering the language. Hate doesn't stem from that. No, and, and typically it goes to there's just something about that word. No, esa palabra no me gusta. And that's it. In your view, is there some commonality that binds the Latinx community? I always go back to the same thing, which is for all the 60 million of us, whether you are older or younger, third, fourth, first generation, liberal or conservative, documented or not. There is someone in your family tree that migrated to this country for the very same reason that everyone did in that family tree, which was to come here to seek a little bit more freedom than what you left in your home country. That is the one thing we all have in common. You can be Venezuelan, Mexican, from Nicaragua or wherever, but the one thing we have in common is that someone came here to search for a little bit more freedom. And that's where I always go back to the empathy. I believe that we all know that. And I believe that that should allow you to want to give people the space to lean into that freedom a little bit more, to lean into your identity however you want, to lean into who you are. And I always go back to that. That to me is what, what we have in common and why I think what I think makes us very unique and binds us together. And that's why like it is now my dad who says Latinx randomly. And it is now like my grandfather, who's like an old Cuban dude has voted Republican, but I look at him and I'm like, you are someone that has constantly been searching to reinvent themselves. No, you are someone that has constantly been in in, in search of the same thing that I am, which is to not be told who you are by a Cuban government and to be who you wanted to be in this country. That's all I'm doing. That's all most people are doing. And when you break it like that, the X becomes less scary. No, when you personalize it, when you give light to that like immigration story that we all have, people start to get it in a different way. Tell us about the journey that you went on, because you went on an actual journey, and the kinds of people that you talked to, like a few of the characters from Latinx that show true diversity in experience and backgrounds that defines that generation. Yeah, so I'm talking to you right now from Georgia. And when I was here in Georgia the last time, I ended up embedding with a community of indigenous Latinos that are living in like red counties all throughout rural Georgia. And these are generations of indigenous Mayans now coming from Guatemala where decades ago they came here and they settled here. Many of them were working in you know the Atlanta Olympics back then and then they settled in. And so this is a community that typically doesn't speak in Spanish, but they speak to you in Mam or in Cancoal, which is their like indigenous dialect. And they're here. They're in Georgia, right? That they're part of that coalition that Stacey Abrams talks about. Latino voters in Georgia are an essential part of the coalition that will elect Joe Biden here in Georgia. Two years ago, when I was at the border, typically when I go to the border, 
I'm there to talk about the wall or immigration. Well, I was embedding with a group of Latinas who are fighting for reproductive justice. And I think a lot about us and, and 2016, because I, I remember having these conversations where we were like, how do we talk about abortion with Latinos without saying the word abortion? No. And it turns out that these women are literally going around like in trailer parks in the Rio Grande Valley, yeah. miles away from the border. And they're having these conversations amongst themselves. They're talking about abortion loudly because they have to know because they feel trapped in, in many ways. And so that was incredible. Um, also on the border, you know, I've talked to a lot of activists that are not just fighting for immigration reform, but fighting to give light to the massive HIV crisis that's happening among Latino men at the border. Right. So just one layer of Latinx is showing you just how many issues affect us that go beyond immigration. No, this is just happening at the border. One of the things that I think about a lot when we're when everyone's covering, you know, the border, yeah. sometimes I have to look out and I'm like, where is a cohesive voice among the Latinx community? What is our collective approach to what's happening? And I think that's what's missing. And people will be like pissed off at me for saying this comment. But I think mm -hmm. part of the lack of understanding us as a community is that we have yet to find a communal voice as one. No. And I think that to me is the importance of the term Latinx is like if you start understanding our threads, then perhaps we could get to like, what is our collective voice as one where I still feel like we're completely fractured. And there is a women's lens that I feel like could get people to care about what's happening at the border in a different way that is less politicized from what we're seeing. How so? You mean more focused on the actual humans, perhaps? Or Yes. My biggest takeaway from going to the border these past couple of weeks has been if people understood what it takes a mother, no, what it takes a woman to literally carry her child throughout Central America to then come to the border, like if people understood what drives someone to do that, then I feel like we would be having a very different conversation. And I feel like that is a touch point that connects every single person on the other side of the border. You know? If you're able to at least put yourself in those shoes, then I feel like we would be having a different conversation. What is it that would drive someone to do that? Not why they're here. Not, right. no, don't come just yet, but why? And I don't know. That to me has been lost a little bit in this narrative. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be back with Paola Ramos on just something about her in a few. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps to detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with our guest today, Paolo Ramos, host and correspondent for Vice on Showtime. 
So both you and I have sort of made a jump from politics to journalism, or at least storytelling. (laughs) I don't think of myself as a traditional journalist, but I do think that my experience, uh, the experience that I have from working in politics for so long, means I I have some insight that can be useful. I hesitate to call myself a journalist because I know that that makes conventional journalists uneasy because, you know, I am not unbiased. I'm not objective. Of course, I'm not sure that anyone is actually objective. We all have whatever experiences we have that we bring to the work that we do. I think about this a lot, a lot, to the point that someone at some point was like, you have to get rid of like on your Twitter bio or your Instagram bio, you have to get rid of your like political past. And I remember there was a point where I really struggled with that. I was like, does this make me a bad journalist? Not carrying this like political baggage with me. And I think my my own dad, who has only been a journalist his whole life, was like, right. no. You like, said that you've had like lively conversations maybe with your parents. And that's right. How you described it. You described it in such a way that suggested that there might have been some conflict around this question. No, but I, I now I'm at the point where I believe it makes me a better storyteller. And I believe the more experiences you have out there and the more like perspectives and having been inside of the circle makes you be a better person outside because I think it informs our questions It informs the way we view things and it informs what to look out for. And so I've now come to terms with that. But it took me a good year where I was like, should I be inside of the closet or outside of the closet with this one? You know, going back to the like, what hat do you wear? And you can wear all of your hats. Let everybody know what your hats are. You know, I think that that transparency is good. And I think I'm sure you've thought about this all the time. But I think from 2016, one of the lessons learned and just in politics in general is how the press covered us. Right. And sometimes what it means to be lenient or passive or to be objective can be more harmful than not. And you can harm that like objective lens that you're aiming for. And so I always go back to that. I think there's times and there's positions where certain questions have to be asked and certain stances have to be had. And I don't think everyone needs to abide by that. But that was one of my lessons learned from politics. And sometimes in aiming for objectivity, you're hurting that cause. Right. Because I I think what reporters are looking for when they talk about wanting to be objective is they want to be credible. And they're equating credibility with objectivity. So I just try to, you know, avoid that by letting just I think my role is to try to illuminate for people what it's actually like on the inside Why are people motivated to do the things they're doing? How hard is it going to be? What's the impact likely to have? But without passing judgment. Exactly. I have found for me that the best strategy to do that is through finding the right people to take us there, right? So I try and find like those stories or the voices that can illuminate the facts for people in a different way. But then I also think what we're up against You know, I don't know how many, I mean, I do know how many times you've had to interview like QAnon supporters, right? Or like people like that believe in, you know, anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. And so I think that's where this theory comes into play even more important. What what is your role in those moments? I mean, one of the most interesting things I do in the job is talk to Trump supporters because I'm, you know, fascinated to understand where they're coming from. I want our viewers to hear Mm -hmm. because I think there's so many caricatures of Trump supporters to understand where they're, you know, where they're coming from, how it might be that, you know, someone you grew up with ends up as a Trump supporter, even though you're on a very different side of it. And I find that those are sort of the most fascinating 
Yeah, like to understand the like Latino Trump supporters or like the Latino like right extremist movement has been one of the best parts of doing this job, right? Instead of to dismiss or to leave it as that, to like unpack, you know, what what leads all of the elements now that can lead to that. And I think as a journalist, that's an incredible like project to take in on. I actually watched a focus group last week with all Trump voters on the question of immigration and the border. And first they were asked, what word comes to mind when you hear the word immigrant? And it was hardworking, you know, American. I mean, it was all of these, you know, words that we think as Americans kind of have historically attributed to immigrants in a positive way. And then asking about the border, very, very knowledgeable about the border, really following it closely and a lot of concern about the children. Mm how the children were being treated, how it's impacting them, the desperate situation that these people are in. Of course, they still blame Biden because they say Biden told them that it was okay to come and it's terrible. We should not be allowing these people to put themselves Mm. in this kind of jeopardy. But it was a lot of charity, a lot of religious people too, and very supportive of DREAM. You know, so this would be legislation to give a path to citizenship to young people who were brought here by their parents. That's why I'm so committed to doing this because I think you just laid it out perfectly. When you make it about the people, right, when you show the human nature of it and you do put politics aside, that's the reaction you get even amongst Trump supporters. Then the problem is when you have people like, you know, Kevin McCarthy, a member of Congress going to the border and claiming that terrorists are the ones that are crossing the border. That's what scares me more so than the people you're talking about. Yes, that scares me as well. But it makes me grateful for the work you're doing because you're telling the real stories behind these headlines. You're telling the real stories of the people that are enduring this trauma. And I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Val. Thank you. Sarah, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh, my God. The stories from Panama and Colombia, I mean, just faced with the reality of what um, these people, these mothers in particular, are facing is really sobering and really moving. I I watched the episode as well. And just like, you know, it's 15 minutes long, so you don't really get the backstory. But to hear the way that she spoke about how she felt in some of those moments, hearing the babies crying, you know, that story of the three-month-old turning blue because they stopped breathing. I mean, just those moments that you don't get to capture and hearing how she was grappling with how to react in each moment as a journalist, but also, you know, human was just so sobering, agreed. You know, what really struck me is she was, she herself speaking as a woman telling these stories, the stories about women is how much of that has been missing in history. It's not a small thing. Mm -hmm. How different it can be when you do have diversity of voices that's telling these stories and that's sharing, you know, what has happened in their own life. You know, that kind of reporting that she's doing is very powerful. And, you know, as you know, I think a lot about the immigration issue and I can feel it's starting to, it's been very political mm-hmm. and that sort of set, right? Those the, the sort of like poles aren't going to move. But I do feel that there's a, a, a softening. And when you look at this issue as a question of migration as opposed to right. just like the political sense of an immigration issue that, you know, whether it's because they're escaping gangs or crime in their country or they're climate refugees, migration is sort of here to stay as an issue. And uh, the way Paola is telling these stories is, I think it's aiding that kind of transition, which is useful because it, it's trying to drain the politics 
out of it. You can get to solutions. And, you know, women are the connective tissues of society. We're the ones that, you know, give life. We're the ones that care for our families. We are friends, moms, daughters. And she really pointed out that she thinks the stories that are going to resonate with people that everyone can connect to and understand are women's stories. And I also think it's interesting that these migrants, you know, they are fleeing poverty, violence, and all that in their home countries. But she said a lot of them are women that are fleeing machismo. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so interesting. I did some reporting in South and Central America actually a few years ago covering the lack of reproductive rights, specifically in Latin America. You know, across Latin America, there are only three countries that have legalized abortion for any reason in early in pregnancy. But most of the countries have strict restrictions, like a mother's life being in danger is the only reason you could get an abortion. And a handful have complete abortion bans no matter what the circumstance. A lot of that does have to do with religion. It's a very religious region, but it's also the ingrained misogyny in those countries and a desire to control women. Um, It just made me think, you know, when Paolo was talking about these migrants, like many of them may have children that they didn't plan for because of the restrictions. So they want to give them a better life in the U.S. because they don't have the freedom to do that in their home countries with threats for men in their life or, you know, healthcare restrictions. Um, So I think it's, you know, all interconnected. One thing that I forgot to give her a hard time about is a tweet that she sent oh, the yes. day that this particular episode of Vice aired where she had gone to uh, Colombia and Panama. And, you know, it's this incredibly powerful story. It's not being covered the way she did it by other outlets. It was really important for people to see. And Pal tweets, if you have time, please watch <laughs> this. It's like, have faith and confidence in the importance of your own reporting and these women's stories and like, proudly assert to people that they need to watch this. Hopefully she will listen to this. Humility does not escape any woman. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so true. So true. But we're working on it. We're working, we're on, working it. on it. We're working yeah, on it. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Awesome conversation. Talk to you soon. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Paolo Ramos for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 